Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Today, I am honored to be joined by Matthew Crawford. He's the author of three books, Shop Class as Soulcraft, The World Beyond Your Head, and Why We Drive, and a wide array of essays in various publications, including Unheard American Affairs, The Hedgehog Review, New York Times, and The New Atlantis, and and many others. He uh, is also a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Virginia, and someone whose writing I've admired for quite a long time. So it's uh, exciting to be able to talk to you. Yeah, well, I'm excited too. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Fantastic. So the the piece that made me uh, feel like I needed to reach out to you and, and arrange this conversation was published late last year. And it begins with a discussion of the no fap phenomenon online the um you know the the young men's movement largely to refrain from from masturbation but opens out into a an extremely broad history of uh sexual shifting sexual mores and the possible or in fact demonstrable role of top-down social engineering projects in those developments. And so the title of that piece, which I'm not, you know, usually my experience is the titles aren't, aren't my idea or the, the ones they end up with aren't the ones I give them. But um, the title of this piece was, was the sexual revolution a government psyop? So perhaps we could start just by answering that question. <laughs> was the sexual revolution a government psyop? Well, it wasn't totally not. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that would be too, way too simple to 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 say that and leave it at that. Um, but yeah, the 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 piece kind of explores um, this moment right after World War II, or well, I mean, even before World War II, when um, anti-fascist politics in the West got wedded to a program of um, sort of Freudian political therapy, which uh, required um, sort of getting unrepressed. So you trace this back to the figure, at least in the intellectual genealogy of this, this link between sexual repression and fascism back to the renegade Freudian psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich, who's a fascinating character who actually ends up in rural Maine at the end of his life, where there is to this day a museum, um, which I've I've aspired to go to for some years, but haven't quite made it. it um, but basically towards the end of his life, he was... Um, you know, something of a of a kind of kook conspiracy theorist, uh, yeah. you know, and and he was also 
persecuted by the the federal government for um particularly for uh you know selling i believe by mail these orgone boxes right these um these uh which you know are parodied in in woody allen's uh sleeper (laughs) right but um you know which is is in a way a kind of interesting uh film in relation of these themes but um it's um you know basically this this wooden box that you go sit in and supposedly it helps you um you know kind of harmonize your your orgone right which is this kind of um this kind of what he regarded as kind of material manifestation of what freud called libido right which which is he saw as being distorted in all sorts of ways that that sort of needed to be corrected but earlier in his life he was a commun you know he was an active communist and anti-fascist agitator and so he linked a sort of freudian analysis of repression to the mass psychology of fascism yeah uh, i've forgotten the uh the, the Woody Allen sleeper uh, never thought to make that connection, but that <laughs> just capture uh, the you know the, the weirdness of the moment. Um, so yeah, so that's later. I think that's what in the probably in the sixties or fifties. Uh, yeah, it's 50s. after he after he comes to the U.S. Um, you know, yeah. he becomes he becomes less sort of involved in left wing politics and is more you know becomes a kind of. I mean, a, a kind of new age grifter. And I mean, well, at least he was regarded as a grifter by the federal government because they <laughs> prosecuted yeah. him for selling this kind of quack medicine. Yeah, um, well, you, I think you could, re- this is getting off of our, our assigned topic, but I think you could regard him as one of an early um, kind of figures in the human potential movement with the the sort of orgasmic energy sort of gathering. It's like an antenna, I guess, this box that you sit in and sort of gathers it from the universe. Um, right. So, and, but it, go ahead. And also his trajectory in a way anticipates what we associate with the shift from the sixties to the seventies, right. Where there's this turn from kind of political activism t- to this kind of inwardness and, um, yeah. self-help and self-improvement. <clears throat> so he sort of, I think he, he really shifts from this sort of radical political project to this kind of self-improvement and, and, you know, human potential project earlier than, than the rest of the culture does. Yeah. Um, but so, right. In the piece, we're talking much earlier in the 1930s. Um, so he writes a book called, uh, it's on my shelf right here. I think it's Fascism and, wait a minute. I'll just turn Mass around. Mass Psychology of Fascism, is that? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so right. He, he splinters off from the main Freudian um, school. Freud was sort of uh, decidedly apolitical in his in the way he thought about psychoanalysis which fits with his more or less tragic view of the human condition that there's this ineliminable conflict between self and society so the revolutionary program is not you know he's just not down with this attempt to sort of reconcile self and world in that way whereas reich um really was so he sort of heads this splintered off politicized wing of the psychoanalytic movement um, that is Marxist. Um, this becomes, uh, you know, there's a number of figures that are, you know, often called the Frankfurt School, um, figures floating in and out of this circle. And so for Reich, um, 
writing in the early 30s, fighting fascism is going to require a wholesale transformation of the German psyche. And um, so he thought that the Germans' attraction to authoritarian politics was rooted in sexual repression and rooted in uh, the family, in a particular sort of a, a sharp differentiation of sex roles within the family and a strong father. And in particular, these are features of the uh, working class family and lower middle class family. And um, in that book, there's a real hatred of <laughs> the working class, as was not too untypical of uh, Marxists um, then and now. <laughs> so, so yeah. And so what work is interesting is when you discover that these ideas got taken up um, in the American security services, and in particular the OSS, when they were planning for the re-education of the Germans upon their defeat and occupation. Um, so this idea of Freudian political therapy um, was really kind of one of the guiding um, ideas uh, of the occupation government. And then where it gets even more interesting is when you realize that immediately after the war, some of these same ideas get turned on America in the sense that there's this, you know, pretty strong anxiety that Americans too harbor this latent tendency to Nazism. And what are we going to do about it? Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's a first pass through the, um, through the history there. You want to, and if you want to jump in and pull some, something out to focus on. Right. So we have in the post-war period, the popularization of Freudian psychoanalysis, um, you know, it, it becomes a kind of dominant paradigm. It's embraced really by the medical community. Um, but it's also when we first are really developing this therapeutic culture, right? Which, you know, we can think of on a more kind of individualized level as being, you know, a period in which people start going to therapy, start, um, you know, using that as a, a major form of kind of self-reflection, self-creation, et cetera. But, you know, there's also this way that it's tied into these larger projects of social engineering and that are, that are really driven by this concern with uh, fascism and authoritarianism more broadly. Yeah. And so that, you know, you get with the Frankfurt school, you know, interestingly there, you know, they, they, they come over to the U S and, you know, they're, they're treated pretty well. Um, and, and are tied in really to the intel, you know, and this is kind of the origin of these like Frankfurt school conspiracy theories, right. Or at least one of the origins of them is that, you know, they are connected to the OSS. Um, they're, you know, getting essentially government funding for their early projects. Um, and so, you know, th there is kind of this concern with the potential for authoritarianism, which I think, you know, does partly come out of, and you mentioned this in the piece, 
you know, th- these are people who have kind of been forced into exile and are, are I mean, so the original um, kind of trajectory in this line of thinking was in the 1930s. These Marxists had to figure out, you know, why had the proletariat not embraced communism and instead much of it had turned to fascism, had turned to the right. And so, you know, first they were concerned about that. Um, you know, to to some extent, they were also concerned about the fact that the Soviet Union had become authoritarian, right, in, in a way that paralleled the rise of fascism, right? And so then when they come to the United States, they kind of bring these anxieties with them, and they kind of look out at the American populace and see this, um, you know, this this culture they don't know particularly well or understand particularly well, but you know, which which clearly had, you know, certain tendencies in the 30s and 40s towards, you know, figures like famously, you know, Father Coughlin and so on. Right. And so this, you know, rang all kinds of warning bells for them. Right. And then those kind of tied in also to, as you show in the piece, this this sort of patrician Northeastern wasp um, kind of uh anxiety about the you know the common man the the american demos yeah so, these, so these things kind of come together as as i understood you to be arguing yeah i think there was um sort of a ripe political soil for the reception of these imported freudian seeds uh christopher lash is very good on this in his book the true and only heaven where he's talking about early 20th century liberals in America who take themselves to be the civilized minority. Uh, so figures like uh, Mencken and um, Walter Lippmann, they're really unsure about the demos as a reliable partner in the democratic project. So that's where you begin to see <laughs> that the word uh democratic becomes very slippery because it becomes really detached from any kind of majoritarian sensibility. There's something like a democratic character type is what's wanted. And it's precisely the demos that fails to um, live up to this character ideal. Um, So then you have, you know, these refugees coming from Europe, this psycho psychoanalytic practitioners who've narrowly escaped death at the hands of the Nazi murder state. And so they're quite understandably not terribly well disposed uh, to the majority since, you know, the Nazis came to power with kind of majority support and a kind of terrifying, um, you know, bit of democratic legitimacy in the narrow procedural sense of having won that support. So I think that got grafted on to our own homegrown waspy liberal um, antipathy to um, to the majority. And what's interesting is that, I mean, after the war, World War II now, anti-fascism became really a program of social management. And I think that that's probably an American innovation that that's, you know, that's our contribution. And so social management on the premises of this Freudian political therapy, which really saw the family as the root of the problem is, is the root of um, that's where um, authority 
simply is uh, incubated and reproduced. And it's really the figure of the father is the problematic figure. And so as Reich says, the revolutionary um, project is one of destroying the ancient mystique of the father. Now in America, the, the sort of the vanguard doesn't call itself revolutionary, it calls itself liberal. Um, but it's similarly committed to kind of bringing into being this new character type of democratic man. Um, and so what you see um, in the aftermath of the war is that liberalism is now not anti-totalitarian, but because it wants to create this new man, the democratic man, it's really a countervailing project of man-making that's no less total in its uh, reach and its demands than, you know, we think of creating a new man as the, the Soviet uh, and, you know, also Nazi projects. But it turns out liberalism too is, it has this sort of deep anthropological um, mission. And that's, you know, very much evident, uh, you know, through today, I think, which, which I think, you know, speaks to the sense people have, I think a growing sense that there is a totalitarian uh, kind of core to a political philosophy that avows itself to be merely kind of realizing the capacity for individual choice and yada, yada. Yeah, it's interesting. Also an unheard, I reviewed a book last year about the history of social engineering that I thought was quite interesting. I mean, it it attempted to, in a way, provide a different vocabulary for having the discussions that were misleadingly framed around notions of, of disinformation and so on during the the past five or six years. And it you know, part of what's interesting is that, you know, we we had this whole vocabulary around social engineering, around propaganda, you know, much of which was actually introduced by people who were not, not only not averse to those projects, but actually saw themselves as contributing positively to a kind of um, process of, of, of political management of, of the demos through social engineering and through propaganda. And so one figure you also mentioned in, in your piece in, in this history is Edward Bernays, right? His um, Freud's nephew, who becomes a foundational figure in propaganda, in public relations, yeah. in advertising in, in the US and, and really in the world. Um, and then, you know, this, I mean, you mentioned Walter Lippmann, right, who's um, a, a kind of key figure of this period, right, who, you know, writes public opinion, which, you know, really quite explicitly presents public opinion as this, this thing that elites have to explicitly set out to manage and, and control. And so, you know, there was kind of this explicit technocratic project, right, of, of social right. engineering and that, you know, was there's a huge literature about, um, and, you know, it's, it's quite, uh, 
it's just quite explicit that this is what they saw themselves as doing and were were yeah. um you know engaging in various kinds of practices to to bring about right and this is at the same time as the birth of the administrative state right with the Woodrow Wilson administration so it's really a kind of of transfer of sovereignty from kind of representative branch of government to executive agencies. And this is occurring, you know, so there had just been an expansion of voting rights, which kind of posed a problem for for the technocratic, you know, sort of management of society, because these are sort of less enlightened elements of society that are now voting and may not be down with, um, you know, things that the technocratic liberals want to do. So there's a kind of transfer of initiative and discretion from the legislation, from the legislature to executive agencies. So that's sort of the political context in which um, this kind of nascent um, social engineering ambition is um, germinating. And so the kind of the big, um, revelation to me in looking into this history after World War II is that this administrative state, which had now for about 50 years been um, kind of developing under the kind of supervision of, you know, Northeastern liberals, um, the administrative state becomes the therapeutic state. And this is through the influence of this imported sort of Freudian political therapy um, and so, you know, the birth of, say, sex education in schools, uh, HR as a kind of massive layer of, um, you know, of life in the, in the private sector, you can think of as um, kind of the spirit of administration taking up a medical, uh, a pseudo-medical kind of idiom and redescribing uh, sort of what are normally taken to be problems of moral judgment and casting them as uh, in the language of psychology. So what this amounts to is a displacing and disqualifying of just vernacular understandings uh, that, that normally guide life and sort of colonization by expertise on a lot of different fronts, but but sex being really at the at the core of it, sex and the family, and the father, this you know, again this problematic figure. So let's turn back actually to the the lead of this piece, which has to do with this masturbation um, anxiety. And so, you know, basically you point out that on one hand, there's a great deal of anxiety in the past decade about male sexuality, right? We have the emergence of this toxic masculinity um, terminology and a great deal of, uh, you know, of anxiety about a sort of predatory, you know, masculine type, right? And, you know, on one hand, obviously such you know, such people do exist in, you know, often in these, you know, extremely prominent industries. 
Um, on the other hand, it it does seem like, you know, the 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 sort of high fever pitch of panic around that has has receded somewhat. And interestingly, what you've ins- what you've seen kind of in the past year or two is a, a number of relatively well received books that you know by women you know, who present themselves to some extent as feminists kind of arguing that, you know, actually there's something to be said for these more traditional sort of pre pre-sexual revolution, sexual mores, you know, in part because they kind of help keep men under control. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been interesting that that, that argument has become, um, you know, I mean, usually by at least somewhat conservative coded authors. Um, but I'm thinking of um, Louise Perry and Christine Emba as two examples. Um, but, you know, it's it's been interesting to see that these books have been relatively positively received and haven't been denounced, even though they're essentially advocating for some degree of restoration of traditional sexual mores on some sort of feminist grounds. So, you know, there are some interesting things happening in this whole discussion. But then, as, as you note, you know, what's interesting is these men who, I mean, that this is famously associated with the the notorious uh, Proud Boys, right? Who are, um, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, if if you wanted to reach for whoever is supposed to emblematize something like the fascist threat that people were concerned about in the mid century, that's kind of who you would go for. Um, they're associated with this anti masturbation um, view, and then you know, there's kind of just this broader. Uh, this broader acceptance of this idea that, you know, men need to um, keep that tendency under wraps um, in order to establish a greater degree of sort of self-control and less susceptibility to the, the sort of harmful and perhaps, you know, attenuating and even feminizing influences of the culture. Right. And so, you know, what's interesting is that this, uh, male anxiety about masturbation even though it in some ways is aligned with this kind of broader cultural concern about toxic masculinity or whatever um you know it, it's a it's a it's a project of kind of self-control of male sexuality but nevertheless it's coded as you know it, and it's it's treated as a kind of sign of of a, a fascist tendency right it's it's seen as as kind of of a piece with this larger emergence of of these sort of new fascist threats in recent times right so yeah this you know i i think you show really does kind of take us back to this um this original moment right when this as you say this kind of anti-fascist project of of social engineering um, took hold in in mid century. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, at first glance, it looks like there's the, the somewhat hysterical responses to to no fap um, as being fascistic. You know, your first thought is, well, what's what's so threatening about young men developing some kind of self command or ascetic response to this, you know, sort of culture and industry of porn that, you know, they find to be dehumanizing and predatory because, you know, you can recognize a sort of symmetry of concerns with feminism. Um, But I think what the alarming thing is, is that this, 
you know, the, the reason to sort of conserve your sexual energy, I gather, for these people is that you think your vital energy is being dissipated and sapped. So this is a reappearance of, of vitalism, which of course is also an element on the online right with figures like BAP, right? Bronze Age pervert, and, and you could name probably a few others. And vitalism has a long history. Uh, one of my favorite, maybe my absolute favorite historian currently working is Jackson Lears. And he has a book, uh, it's, not, it's not out yet, um, but I've talked about it with him, uh, called Animal, um, Animal Spirits. And so it's about, it's a history of vitalism in the United States. Um, so figures like Teddy Roosevelt, William James, um, Muhammad Ali, arguably. And then in Europe, of course, Nietzsche and Henri Bergson, these are figures who say, you know, there's something, uh, there's a kind of animal vitality that you don't want to totally kill off uh, because it's the source of um, necessary energies in society. Um, and, I, you know, it, it, I mean, you, you mentioned a kind of reconsideration very recently by certain female authors who are thinking maybe we don't want to totally neuter our men um, because, you know, we're, we'll, we'll all be worse off. I mean, it's always been the case that male sexuality has to be domesticated, right? It always poses a threat to society. And I maybe the kind of um, this latest development that you referred to would be a recognition that, yeah, it needs to be domesticated as opposed to extirpated, which was, I mean, that was the sort of the Me Too moment, perhaps. So... I mean, part of what I take as particularly the from the concluding passage of your piece is that, you know, part of the danger that is seen in this, you know, the the young man who who refrains from masturbating and gains a certain kind of self-control, self-mastery and autonomy is that, you know, in a way this this would um put such a man at odds with the therapeutic state, right? Yes, and so it, yes. it 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 points towards a kind of subject that is exactly the kind of subject that uh that this therapeutic state wants to uh yeah prevent from coming into being. Well precisely because the premise of the therapeutic state is uh liberation, right? So why would you why would you impose some limitation on yourself to your your libido? Because what we're offering you is liberation, my friend. Um, that that's the sort of creepy come on of this highly kind of managed form of of life that um, that you know the shorthand we're calling that therapeutic. So you know part of what this all makes me think is that. You know, I mean, on one hand, the, you know, the intellectual genealogy of this is, as we've been discussing, kind of tied to this legitimate shock and concern about, you know, what many of these emigre psychoanalysts had seen in, in Europe in the 1930s, um, that, you know, and, and they were, you know, legitimately 
at great risk. Many had lost friends and family. And so they were trying to figure out what was what was going on. And then this this sort of intellectual project became convenient to, you know, broader state and elite interests. Right. And, you know, particularly in terms of making, you know, of of conceiving the demos in a way that was amenable to the construction of these new these new kind of modes of rule that we've been talking about. Um, I do also think that there's sort of a, there's just a key mistake that uh, that's continuous from sort of certain versions of Freud through the, you know, the expressions of the counterculture kind of around the sexual revolution, which is, you know, roughly the notion that the family structure that Freud is, is, uh, engaging with the pathologies of is somehow the, the traditional or like eternal family structure, right? Because I think, you know, another way to view the entire phenomenon of Freudianism, which I think is much more persuasive, is that he's trying to make sense of uh, the family in a moment of its of its weakening as an institution, right? Uh, sort of already in the early 20th century. And so the problem is not that the father is too strong that, you know, is not, is not, the problem is not the primal father, right, of, of Freud's totem and taboo, this kind of, you know, absolutely dominant, authoritative, paternal figure, but instead this kind of attenuated father who is, who is kind of losing authoritativeness, um, you know, for various reasons, right, partly because of the um the reorganization of of modern society around you know the growth of industry right which which transfers all sorts of activities outside of the home yep um partly because of the nature of modern politics right which um which concentrates authority and takes away more localized forms of autonomy so in any case you know i i think Part of the sort of mistake that is made is is the notion of the family as it was sort of being observed from the early 20th century through to, let's say, the 1950s as being some kind of eternal adamantine structure, right, that that was the source of oppression rather than as a kind of and, and you know, I'm I'm drawing on Lash here, who you brought up earlier, right, rather than a, as a kind of um, as a kind of mediating structure that was gradually kind of being hollowed out and, and in a way kind of losing its ability to exercise any meaningful institutional authority. Yeah. So, right. Sort of the, the development of, of capitalism and wage labor, as opposed to sort of cottage industry and the sort of dislocation of, of, of work from the home and I mean, you've written about Illich on gender, so the the way sexually differentiated forms of work get sort of collapsed and erased under capitalism. But there's something you said earlier I wanted to to latch on to. Um, sort of, you were suggesting that for Freud, the the path the pathologies of the family. He was not talking about a sort of timeless primordial um, family, but um, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century um, phenomenon. 
I'm thinking of Philip Reef now. And so what is so what is this father figure? Well, it represents maybe authority simply. And so there's a crisis of authority simply connected to the death of God. Um and the sort of the the felt impossibility of um of any kind of legitimate authority, right? So this is, you know, Reich especially is very kind of almost cartoonish on this, that that any kind of authority is necessarily repressive. There's no such thing as generative authority or generous authority that's exercised, you know, for the good of another rather than sort of cynically. So for Reef, you know, this is this is the death of the sacred or something like that. Um, and he reads Freud as responding to that. And of course, uh, also sort of contributing to it. Um, if you haven't, I, mean, I think a lot of your listeners may have read Reef's The Triumph um, of the Therapeutic. But his first book is called Freud, The Mind of a Moralist. And it's an extraordinary uh, book. So he was, um, you know, he regarded Freud as the greatest mind of the 20th century. Um, so he's deeply, you know, a student of Freud and also uh, just brilliantly shows the kind of culture destroying influence of Freud. It's both. Check it out. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, you know, going back to, you know, Freud did, you know, have this series of of disciples who kind of took his teachings and turned them into this kind of anti-authoritarian right. worldview. Um, Otto Gross was another one, or who's this Very kind good. of anarchist figure, um, you know, who saw the trajectory of psychoanalysis is towards this kind of, you know, free love and sexual liberation, right? And then from yeah. And so, you know, what what's notable with Freud is he kind of, you know, pretty overtly resists these things, right? And then I think you were referencing civilization and its discontents, you know, really, you know, quite explicitly um lays out why you know, his, his vision is a, is ultimately a tragic one and, and sort of does not admit of these, these sort of uh, delusions of, of somehow, you know, the, Reconciliation. the right. Of, of sort of um, sexual pathologies and sexual discontent being um, politically solvable problems. Right. I mean, one thing that's, um, you know, another point that's kind of interesting <laughs> Something else that um, I was thinking about when you brought up vitalism is some years ago, I dug into the writings of some of the major Black Panther figures, you know, who aren't very widely read these days. But, you know, Eldridge Cleaver, um, you know, was, I mean, quite a popular author. Yeah. I mean, his, but Soul and Ice, I mean, it's quite a shocking book because it, you know, for one so thing, masculine, sort of ad- right? <laughs> right. It, I mean, it essentially advocates for rape as a you know for particularly black men raping white women as a kind of political praxis uh liberatory political praxis right um and and sees this as as part of how society can liberate itself essentially right 
Um, so, but it's, I mean, but it is very Freudian. It's, you know, Cleaver's whole kind of intellectual framework is, is a kind of Freudianism, but very much of this, this kind of liberationist kind of Reichian Freudianism, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it's, it's quite, I mean, and this goes to something else, which is, I think usually, you know, when we think about the count, the era of the counterculture, I mean, on one hand, I'll, I mean, I, the Cleaver thing sort of made me want to, to uh, dig into this more a number of years ago, but I never really have. But, you know, what's, what's fascinating is you have the establishment having really um, imbibed a great deal of Freud, right. As we've been discussing, right. And having really become medically sort of hegemonic paradigm in this period. And of course there's kind of this version of Freudian, you know, if you think of like in, um, in Mad Men, you know, when Don Draper sends Betty to the psycho, to like the local suburban psychoanalyst in Westchester. And then he's, so he's like psychoanalyzing her and she's kind of this archetypal, like repressed, you know, sort of feminine mystique era woman. But then the, the psychoanalyst is basically like informing Don of like what she's saying. So it's kind of this, you know, be, becomes this kind of tool of like suburban male, oppressive authority or something like that. But, you know, so what's odd to me is like, there's kind of this version of psychoanalysis that we, we have an image of, right. Where it's, it's aligned with this kind of patriarchal, you know, post-war suburban conservative project. Right. But then there's also this image of it as kind of being aligned with these, or, or, or I'd say it's, if you look at the vocabulary of the counterculture, it's all kind of infused with this other, you know, more kind of liberatory version of psychoanalysis. So, so, I mean, one thing that is, you know, I think comes out of your piece is just that this opposition isn't as clear cut as it, as it might seem. And that, you know, there, there was a kind of, um, you know, the, the project of sexual liberation, you know, did partly, and that you know goes back to the psyop point, but it, it did partly have this kind of top-down social engineering quality, right? And so th- this means that people like Cleaver, all these other people who were kind of adopting this right, these kind of Reichian versions of Freud were, were not quite as opposed to the establishment as they <laughs> might have thought. Yeah, and and Lash makes this great point that so the the authoritarian personality was the 1950 book sort of supervised by Adorno. Um, so it's this massive social science-y, you know, s- survey of Americans to discover how latently fascist they are. And, and so, you know, the the um, sort of authoritarian lower class or the working class family is the source of the problem. And Lash points out that what's offered as uh, a healthy replacement is not some sort of anarchic, um, you know, sexual communism or something like that, but rather the patterns of the enlightened middle-class family that were already kind of coming into being as, you know, the the accommodation demanded by post-war capitalism, right? Post-war capitalism is... Uh, feminism is structurally necessary to it. Uh, I mean, you have the figure of Rosie the Riveter as this early 
emblem of the munitions economy, which required, you know, this erasure of sexually, you know, sex roles in work. And that just accelerated in the post-industrial economy. So this is just by way of amplifying your point that, um, you know, sort of self-image of being dissident, uh, revolutionary, groovy astronauts of the libido <laughs> um, is kind of hard. Well, I guess it's there's certain, um, you know, deliciousness in noting just how nicely that fits in with precisely those accommodations demanded by um, sort of late stage capitalism. Um, these in terms of sort of the, the new norms of the family, where it's just a kind of assemblage of individuals without any real sex difference and you know sex difference itself comes to be regarded as this sort of hangover from a lower stage of human development that we're all past now so and that, clearly this continues to reverberate in um the kind of um, you know androgyny that is incumbent on uh on young people. I mean, you have this kind of performative disaffiliation from uh, from maleness in particular, I think. I mean, have you ever asked why? Like, I think about speech patterns. And there's, when you talk to people who are under, I don't know what the age is here, 30, 40, um, there's a kind of... Uh, I want to say effeminacy of speech that I don't think has anything to do with being gay or not. I think it's, um, it's a kind of signaling of innocuousness or something. That's my, that's my hunch. Um, but to get back to vital, you want, it looks like you want to say something in response to that. I don't know. Somehow this makes me think of bronze age pervert. He run it before who, you know, is in his actual life as a, an academic, he's, you know, kind of middle-aged. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, he had, he has this um, podcast where if you listen to it, he, you know, he, ha he sort of approximates something of his kind of caveman like stuff, you know, Twitter style, um, you know, and has this sort of Eastern European accent, but, you know, it, it, it is interesting this, you know, that even just to, assert masculine you know if, if your whole explicit project is to assert masculinity it's it it's weirdly this kind of pantomime <laughs> like it's it's almost sure. like it's it's highly performative almost to the extent of i think you know you could see it as a kind of drag right <laughs> i mean there's this whole <laughs> there's this whole you know sort of weirdly queer dimension around you know where he's yeah. post posting all these kind of oiled muscular bodies and stuff but you know, there is also this that that even the kind of project of like reasserting masculinity in this aggressive way is in a way framed in this highly or has to be framed in this kind of postmodern caricatural well, you know, fashion. So Harvey Mansfield wrote this book titled Manliness, and he um, he makes the rather mischievous point that manliness uh, is a bit of a drama queen. Manliness wants an audience. It wants <laughs> to, um, yeah, 
it sort of it needs to needs to create some kind of drama. So it so you know a world without conflict is kind of a world where in which it has nothing to do. And and speaking of that and our referencing back to vitalism, I think the most vivid recent articulation of vitalism is the movie Fight Club, where you know the the Ed Norton's character is this office drone <clears throat> who uh, you know comes home and shops for dust ruffles, you know, from Pottery Barn or something, and just his 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 existence just seems meaningless. So it, he's inhabiting this consumerist and white collar world in which there's no place for sort of male solidarity and, and male energies. And so his, you know, his avatar appears, it's his alter ego, has a very different life. And, you know, it was a, it was a powerful movie. I think it spoke to a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I often think about this, that, um, you know, all of this prestige television of the past couple decades is, almost all of it is about the crisis of masculinity, right? From Tony Soprano, you know, which brings us back to psychoanalysis, of course, uh, to, you know, Walter White. You basically have this, the basic situation is this, you know, male figure in this kind of humiliating position, right? That he has to, has to try to um, figure out how to, and, and, you know, those are sort of opposite figures because you have on one hand, the, the the hyper you know the figure of this hyper masculine subculture who is forced into this position of of you know being the subject of of sort of therapeutic intervention right and then <laughs> on the other hand you have with Walter White you have the opposite where you have this kind of this sort of cucked beta male the antithesis of Walter White and Tony Soprano right. you know is these kind yeah. of I mean, and so and it, and you know, so it's it's been of interest to me that this sort of prestige TV genre. I mean, I haven't quite figured this out in my mind, but it, you know, it's in a way, it 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 just seems to be inexorably tied to this larger concern about the state of masculinity, and I can't yeah. quite I can't quite fully figure out why that is, but it's. Uh, yeah, well, I've 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 written a pretty long piece um, titled "The Male Stain," that's kind of about the the moral cloud that uh, the male lives under. I, I think I'll put it on my Substack, Arcadelia. <clears throat> yeah, so we should uh, we should touch on that actually. So, what is Arcadelia? <laughs> Yeah, so Arcadelia. Um, well, you know, it's a it's a neo neologism. How do you pronounce the word? It's a new word um, I coined, maybe pretentiously, by analogy with psychedelia. So psychedelia would mean mind revealing or soul revealing. Uh, so Arcadelia would mean rule revealing. So it's you know, and it the it seems like an apt parallel given how confusing and opaque uh, the answer to the question who rules has become. It's hard to make out where sovereignty lies. 
it doesn't seem to lie where it is said to uh, in, in, you know, sort of what you learn in a civics class. Um, <clears throat> so I guess it's um, <clears throat> meant for anyone who, who maybe feels like they've been on acid since about 2016 or, two th or maybe since the pandemic, or maybe that everyone else is on acid. Um, so, so there's this hallucinatory quality to um, life these days, or or is it a revel is it revelatory? In other words, are we seeing sort of through cracks in the system to something underneath that was always there, uh, but it's now become more visible? And you ask yourself, "Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing?" And do other people see it too? So, hence the um, hence the new word. So tying this back to what we've been discussing, one larger takeaway would be that, you know, and, and this is an argument I think we can apply just to the Trump era, but then as you show, we can really take it back to the post-war period where the, the, where we see the emergence of this therapeutic state <clears throat> and basically what we see is the the fear of authoritarianism or fascism or the um the danger of authoritarianism or fascism becomes the alibi for the construction of this extremely authoritarian invasive and and in many respects itself highly authoritarian system right and so it it becomes this uh, and and you know so we we can see many versions of this. I mean, and, you know, I've sort of written things that argue this in different ways that, you know, the, the fear, you know, under Trump who, you know, whatever you make of him was, you know, a, a far was a, a less, either a less Imperial president or a, a less, at least a less effective Imperial president than his predecessors. Um, and, you know, just, um, was you know i mean i mean you you had an immense consolidation of power in the presidency in in the two previous um administrations george w bush and and obama and you know in some ways trump was comparatively unambitious in terms of expanding the authority of the office um but nevertheless the the fear you know suddenly everybody was reading uh the authoritarian personality, as well as, you know, Hannah Arendt's uh, Origins of Totalitarianism on the subway, you know, back in 2017, I, you know, saw it many times. And uh, so that, again, we had, the, you know, really the, the classic texts of that period were resurrected, right, around this idea that, um, you know, once again, this, this fascist threat was rearing its ugly head, and nevertheless, what, you know, what this enabled was actually a huge expansion of power uh, on the part of, you know, not only the, the administrative state, but on the part of these kind of quasi-state entities, such as big tech companies, right? Which as the, you know, Twitter files have been revealing, and that's not the only place we need to look, um, were you know really became an extension of of state power 
during that period. Yeah, sort of acting as franchisees of the state, I mean, or at least of the Democratic Party. Um, yeah, so right, when, it's like whenever I'm tempted to use the word state now, I have to stop myself and you know, there's a sort of state-like entity, the contours of which are complex that includes, you know, corporations, foundations, NGOs, um, it's a kind of sprawling parastate, which is where sovereignty seems to be exercised, if, if by that you mean sort of the power to decide. So it's a weirdly decentralized um, entity but also i think has sort of brought to fruition tocqueville's fears about i think his phrase was an immense tutelary uh forget what the verb is i mean the, the noun uh, immense tutelary authority but it's hard to grab hold of it and it's hard to address right so hannah arendt talked about the rule of nobody by which she meant bureaucracy, its unaccountable power. And I, you know, I'm, so I'm 57 years old and I'm, I am struck every day by just how bureaucratic daily life has become uh, compared to say uh, 30, 40 years ago. And mostly it's commercial bureaucracies that you have to contend with. Um, you know, your, your call is important to us. <laughs> um, so, and you cannot address these entities. They're, they're, they're completely unaccountable. Yeah. And then you also have this pattern of, you know, woke capital, which can be viewed as corporations putting themselves sort of in the service of the social projects um, favored by the state, you know, sort of the, the civil rights regime. Um, and, you know, in exchange for what, a, a light regulatory hand? I'm not sure what the, it's very hard to unpack like how actual material interests line up with the sort of messianic social transformation projects that have been so embraced um, by the you know Fortune 500. If you read, say, Christopher Caldwell, I think um, you know he really points to the civil rights regime that has um, kind of grown in, um, I think in unintended ways since the Civil Rights Act of 64 and kind of metastasized. Um, he, he points to that as the kind of determining thing that what we call political correctness and think of as this mysterious kind of process of cultural change is in fact a response to actual state power as exercised um, by these executive agencies without um, sort of sort of impervious to democratic pressures, impervious to the, the processes of representative government. So this sort of brings back, brings me back to one of my favorite themes um, of recent years. So 
I mean, just um, a bit of a detour here. There are reasons based on what you discussed to be very skeptical of the authoritarian personality project and what it represented. Um, you know, it it was clearly a kind of intellectual contribution to this um, extremely undemocratic and authority, you know, itself ironically authoritarian project that, you know, treated the, the, the demos with a great deal of kind of patrician contempt and as, you know, fundamentally dangerous and in need of sort of ideological and therapeutic management, you know, which, which set a pattern that we still, you know, could see, you know, activated in a very aggressive way in the, in the Trump years. Um, on the other hand, it's also kind of interesting that Adorno, you know, I, I thought about bringing this up right at the beginning. There's a, you know, famous incident in which Adorno was like lecturing in Frankfurt after he had returned to the U S in the late sixties and the student revolts were happening. And, you know, these women, these, uh, women protesters, like, I think ran up on the stage and like flashed the lecture hall, you know, took off their tops, you know, and so you imagine this kind of elderly, <laughs> elderly diminutive man, you know, with these, you know, bare breasted, um, young, you know, German hippie women, uh, students, um, you know, kind of engaged in this like, you know, Bacchanalian ritual, um, so, you know, he and the and Horkheimer certainly perhaps even more so really um you know that you know became quite um concerned with the dangers of this project of sexual liberation that you know they they arguably had a a certain hand in when you know when they were sort of involved with the OSS and you know promoting this opposition to the authoritarian family and so on and so you know and interestingly Lash um himself, you know, sort of credits um, some of the, uh, Horkheimer's writings with his own kind of um, more critical analysis of the counterculture and, you know, desire to kind of turn back to uh, the, the the function and, and, you know, social role of the family in Haven and Heartless World, Culture of Narcissism and Beyond, and that, you know, Horkheimer... Um, you know, really does kind of engage in a positive reevaluation of the family mm. as an institution in his later work, in part in kind of response to this, you know, extremely, um, you know, trauma. I mean, this kind of new trauma that they experience, basically, of of these uh, these radical students, you know, basically just engaged in in what they saw as this sort of infantile regression. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that so the Frankfurt School, um, you know, does have this kind of shift. And then you also can think about how, you know, they they were kind of early in theory or some some Frankfurt School figures were kind of early in theorizing how countercultural, you know, seemingly sort of counter hegemonic um, politics and sort of cultural gestures could be. Um, co-opted and and sort of used in the exercise of power. So, you know, so that's that's kind of an interesting part of this history. And then, you know, this also makes me think of my friend um, Elena Langa's 
attempt to use the authoritarian personality to actually understand the liberal subject, mm-hmm. the contemporary liberal subject as an authoritarian personality. I'm, I'm glad to hear that someone <laughs> is is doing that because it seems like such an obvious, not not to denigrate what she's doing, it, but but it's a necessary um, an enterprise that could be a lot of fun and, and probably not too hard to just flip it around that way. You know, another figure... <clears throat> who we might want to mention here is Foucault. So in the first volume of History of Sexuality, he talks about this liberatory project as one that has become overbearing and, um, you know, kind of obligatory. You know, we're enjoined to constantly talk about our sexuality. And this is kind of a way that a new kind of cultural authority exercises itself. He didn't use the the language of the therapeutic state, but I think that's what he's talking about. I don't know if 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 he and Lash uh, ever read one another, but they they did. Um there was a oh, short, right. yeah. there was a short piece by Blake Smith, uh previous guest on this uh last year or the year before. Um so yeah Lash did um have some appreciative things to say about Foucault, I mean, he. Re- I think he reviewed a couple of Foucault's books when they were first published in English, and and I believe Foucault also did read and responded positively to the culture of narcissism. So, okay. um, so that's that's pretty interesting. You know, I think um, right this point about Foucault, I would this was in my mind as well when we were talking about sort of the stereotype of the the sort of conservative patriarchal version of psychoanalysis that you know, it tends to dominate at least, you know, the, the idea of like what psychoanalysis was up to say 1965. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, and, and then that this was opposed to this, you know, Reichian liberatory sort of free love version of psychoanalysis that took hold in the counterculture. I think the the basic Foucault analysis suggests this would be a kind of false opposition because, you know, as you say, you know, and his critique is of the whole notion of the Victorian era as being, you know, repressive of se- of sex, right? And, you know, his argument is essentially that all of these sort of social and cultural apparatuses that, that we perceive as, as being repressive, you know, were in fact productive of this entire, you know, these new discourses about sexuality, right? And that you can't really, and that, that, you know, all of these, um, you know, whether it's the, the emergence of, of psychiatry, or, you know, all of these kind of social and cultural anxieties about sexuality, you know, the, the thing they really did was, was in a sense, kind of liberate, liberate, um, sex you know discursively and thematically and kind of bring it into circulation right but and so in a sense yeah liberatory but also the um ones enjoined to participate and sort of self self narrate this sex talk which has a kind of disciplinary function right and so and these things aren't you know these are two sides of the same coin right that they're not um and and so that the apparent liberation of sexuality can always be seen as as a as a the development of a new kind of apparatus of social control, but also vice versa in a sense, right? Yeah, that, and I think I think the conservatives have a a, a a 
an interesting and worthwhile kind of response. You know, if, you know, so it seems like in the, the last couple of minutes of our conversation, we've kind of insisted on the, um, you know, disciplinary function of, of liberation talk. So then where would you locate um, a kind of sexuality that is sort of fully humane? And um, I've become more attuned to Christian uh, thinking about this, this idea of, you know, man and woman and sexual difference as a gift, right? So instead of, um, I think the more intelligent of these thinkers fully, um, completely, grant that gender is a social construction um but it's, it's not by that fact something to be resented and overcome and erased it's it's something that every society sort of constructs and um sort of in light of this given sexual difference i mean you know here sex being something sort of more determinative of gender but expresses itself in different societies in different ways. I mean, you've, you've written about Illich on gender where he, he too, um, you know, emphasizes the, the constructed nature of gender, but isn't scandalized by that, right? It's, it's the, the ground on which we kind of express our, our sexed nature. Um, so, in light of that more sort of appreciative or gratitude oriented response to sexual difference, um, the current landscape begins to look kind of resentful and sort of Gnostic, right? In the sense of the given is something to be overcome. The given is something, whether it's a cultural given, you know, or a biological given, is something to be hated. Um, so the kind of whole transhumanist and transsexual um, determination to be entirely self-making um, looks like a really sad and kind of bitter way to live. Yeah, and, you know, kind of looping back to these online masculine cultures, which, you know, I think are are sort of a mixed bag, but you know, in a way, the, the counterpart to that that I would see as kind of the worst aspect of that, those cultures is is just the, the misogyny, right, where, you know, th that um, any kind of notion of complementarity is, is not imaginable in part because woman becomes kind of the fundamentally a political enemy, right, because mm. the regime or whatever you want to call it is sort of characterized as as feminine not for entirely unsound reasons. Um, but, you know, basically it, the, it, it becomes a kind of mirror image of this, this resentment that I think you're describing. Right. So mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, that there's no, there's no capacity to, I mean, in some cases there is this like really bizarre degree of, of misogyny where um you know, I mean, woman, it becomes only conceivable in terms of these like fantasies of absolute domination or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, you know, I, I think is, 
is a way that the the sort of countercultural response to it in some ways kind of reproduces the same mm. um the same problems that it's sort of engendered by yeah. unsurprising unsurprisingly perhaps yeah so I, I i don't know where this is going to go conversationally but i have sort of two things in my head right now both of which i want to bring forth and see if they in, in any way cohere so you know in christianity you have the idea of a created order and so there's a the sexual order is part of that and it's a gift you know to 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 to, de- to delight in um the other the other item so when i lived in chicago there was this cabaret of um female impersonators as they were called so this is in the 90s and i went there a few times um so it's a you have these men uh dressed as women um the term transsexual i mean maybe it existed back then but it wasn't you know it wasn't in in our vocabulary so some of these were i think sort of post-op you know they had beautiful breasts and they'd they'd wear these gowns and the point is that they were so convincing um when they would you know give up and sing like a share song or something um it was mesmerizing and it really brought home to me that femininity is an art and it's an art that can be cultivated and often in the audience, you'd have these groups of women, I don't, young women, maybe it was like bachelorette parties or something. But I almost got the sense that they were there taking notes on how to be feminine from these male performers of femininity. Um, so that just, it just kind of fits with um, this idea that yes, gender is something performed, something, there's an artifice to it. But it's not thereby something that I would want to just discard. It's um, anyway. I don't know. It does right. not fit I mean, with yeah. the first thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and this kind of the Illich book is maybe the most um, fascinating version of this argument. Now, you know, the, the version of it that's. I mean, the thing that sort of that 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 resonates with is actually this famous Judith Butler account of drag, right? Which I I've sort of wanted to return to because I I find her influence kind of perplexing today because I'm not sure the argument there is really what it's what it's often taken to be. Um, but uh, you know, it it does in some ways. Um, pretty closely resemble what you were just articulating. Um, But, you know, I think what you get from Illich is, yeah, a a sense that there can be a positive, I mean, that, right, this, this notion of, and if you bring in this idea of a gender as an art, then it becomes um, something you can conceive of positively as something to be as something that can be cultivated rather than as as you know the way that co- sort of social construction is 
usually yeah. brought up as a as a kind of you know dismissing something as a mere social construction. Yeah, right. And so yeah, it's the mere is the problem there. Uh, so you know the the necessity to to debunk it speaks to a kind of low or base quality, I think, of of resentment. Um, as opposed to, you know, noticing the artifice of it, and which is not at all incompatible with the idea that there is a a a given or created order that is good. That's the key thing, the goodness of it. And then it's part of human culture to develop the sexual difference in ways uh, that are humane and that are sort of redound to the good of men and women both and that um, one can affirm as worthwhile and bring children up into with um, in a spirit of generosity um, as opposed to tearing everything down and then saying okay now you need to decide what gender you are you uh, six-year-old which seems like just such a um, kind of cruel abdication of care and love. So something that just came into my head is uh, I remember seeing a couple of articles during or maybe after the lockdowns that were about uh, transgender people saying that, you know, basically, you know, what they're, what was traumatic about them, particularly for, for in lockdown was that they were not able to go out in the world and essentially present themselves as the, the sort of gender that they, that they, you know, believe that they embodied or that they, you know, that corresponded to them. Right. And so, without being able to do this, they, and I mean, there's something kind of interesting here, right? Which is that, you know, on one hand, and this goes into, you know, your piece um, also from last year about, uh, that's called, that I think, you know, really lines up with many of the arguments we've been discussing here called COVID was liberalism's end game. Um, but, you know, it, it, it points to this kind of tension within sort of broader liberal culture at the moment, which, you know, is that, um, you know, what we saw during the pandemic was this kind of acceptance of, of uh, the idea that sort of social life could be sacrificed, you know, was a, was something that was acceptable to sacrifice. Right. And not only acceptable, but obligatory, right. That in fact, not sacrificing it would be, tantamount to a kind of violence right and so you know what wh what was then odd was seeing this like one version of it and the, you know the more famous example of this would be which i think you discuss in the piece when the protests occurred right um you know the 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 rationale i believe you cite is more or less that you know when these big black lives matter protests occurred you know, they, they had to be accepted because both were, you know, but both the war against COVID and the war against white supremacy were kind of two fronts in the same broader um, 
emergency politics, right? Where, yeah. where there's, where, you know, what, what, what keeps the fire of liberalism alive now is just, you know, kind of moving from one emergency to the other. Right. And so, yeah. you know, th- th- these had to be, since these were two kind of animating emergencies that they had to be made to align with each other. What was also odd here though, was this, this, you know, these articles that were kind of, you know, the, the one like, um, or, or one acceptable way to kind of be melancholy about the, the harms of lockdowns was to say that they, they prevented this kind of gendered self-realization in public. Right. And replaced it with this thing that, you know, was was inadequate right but you know what's partly ironic here is that so much of this gendered self-realization often seems like um it it often seems like the opposite process right where um you know the the way that you expect to be you know if, if you present yourself online in a certain way you can simply assume that people will accept that self-presentation because of the limitations um, and so then the demand is that the rest of the world kind of um, behave similarly, right? Mm. Um, that that in a sense, you can kind of create the the equivalent of a digital avatar and it has to, you know, be similarly just accepted as straightforwardly true to to who or what you are. So, you know, I think this partly gets at... Um, the way that, you know, a, a lot of these things, you know, that, that, that sort of little exception, you know, these little exceptions, you know, in a way sort of point to the tensions within some of these projects. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just was also kind of wanting to segue a little bit into this COVID theme, perhaps to wrap mm-hmm. up just because, I think here we see the, I mean, you you mentioned, you know, the figure of like the outdoor sort of perma masker, right. Who's common in, in liberal enclaves, you know, could we see this as a kind of new figure of the authoritarian personality? Well, Um, is, is this, um, this kind of, you know, usually sort of middle to upper middle class type of political subject. I guess what I want to say is that, you know, the guy riding his bike with double mast, um, he's sort of enacting a particular kind of subjectivity. And it's precisely the one that the, um, that the current state pins its legitimacy on. In other words, it, it, it has a certain anthropology. So, um, namely that he thinks of himself as vulnerable. Um, he identifies with the immunocompromised. And so I'm, I'm trying to, in one of the things I'm trying to do in the Arcadelia substack is um, sort of trace these connections. I think we have this state-like entity that expands its dominion on two fronts. Um, so you have the woke revolution and you have the colonization of ordinary life by technical expertise. And these appear unrelated, but I think they share an underlying logic. 
both displace and delegitimize vernacular practices as well as the understandings that support them. On both fronts, I think the legitimacy of the ruling entity rests on this anthropology that posits a particular kind of self, a vulnerable one, which the governing entity then positions itself to protect. Uh, both developments expand the reach of managerial authority, generate new bureaucratic constituencies, and disqualify common sense as a guide to reality. And on both fronts, this entity expands through claims of special knowledge. So I'm trying to get at this kind of clerical, sort of interlocking clericies that seem to have um, to be where sovereignty is located these days, as opposed to, say, the majority. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that example of um, the sort of person who is, you know, the lockdown prevents them from this kind of gendered self-realization. You know, I, I think it sort of points to the limits perhaps of this model, right? Where, you know, if, if self-realization is enabled by experts, right? If it's, if it's enabled by your sort of designation um, as, you know, a certain type of gendered subject by the relevant authorities, um, you know, then there's some sense in which that's, that's seen as not, you know, and it's it's perceived as not enough, right? Which is why on one hand, there's kind of this, you know, this sense that if you're not going out and sort of being recognized as what you present yourself as, then it somehow delegitimates you, which I think, you know, is based on a certain actually correct insight, right? Which is that, you know, we are fundamentally, um, we are who we are socially, right? We are yeah. who we are through um, through our embeddedness and yeah. a kind of broader social context. And so, you know, on one hand that can, you know, so, so there is a kind of insight buried in this, this weird mm -hmm. notion. And then, but then on the other hand, I think it reflects more negatively in the, the way that, you know, again, that there is this kind of authoritarian demand to, I mean, and this is why, like, I think in a sense, Jordan Peterson, who I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, but, you know, I think his his original insight that, you know, the Canadian government sort of, you know, threatening to impose some kind of regime in which people would be forced to adopt the preferred pronouns of a given person um, and that there would be some kind of punitive measure you know, behind that enforcement, like that, that, that was a sort of genuine, um, a, a genuine authoritarian uh, shift that, you know, deserved to be recognized as what it was. Um, yeah. So I think the way that there's, there's sort of this demand, you know, that, that on one hand, the, the experts, the expert designation is what is seen as sort of adequate and sufficient mm. to make one what one is. But at the same time, there's kind of this, this demand that that be reflected in, 
you know, sort of mundane social interactions, right? And and the problem with that is that that's that's what I would see as a fundamentally, you know, deeply authoritarian project, right? Well, I mean, it's on the on the one hand, as you say, this uh, the you know this kind of being bereft of social interaction and therefore that one's gender identity can't be sort of performed and affirmed, as you say, carries um, or is compatible with a a real insight, namely that we're socially constituted um, selves and, uh, you know, being in, in isolation isn't fully what it is. But on the other hand, um, the demands that others sort of participate in one's, um, you know, fantasy of being of the other sex is a repudi- is a repudiation of of the social. In other words, it's a kind of solipsistic demand that everyone go along with my um, really self kind of generated. Um, pronouncement of what I am. Usually what you are is something that emerges in social interaction and social roles uh, that are not fully chosen, right? You just kind of find yourself in them. Um, and the, so, yeah, I think maybe the, the episode that you refer to with Jordan Peterson, what he's rejecting is uh, uh sort of in the name of sociality, a repudiation of the very idea that there is a collective kind of understanding of what a man is and what a woman is, and you can't unilaterally simply uh, re- uh, reject that and insist that others address you as you know, a woman or a man, uh, though you don't present as such, right? Right. Or, or by uh, sort of fiat pronouns, right? That you, yeah. like, that you've actually, in some cases, like personally invented for yourself, right? Right, right. I mean, which, this... which is to elide the whole nature of language, right? It's a shared yeah. thing. That's the same thing, yeah. Right, and so I think that you know, in a way, that sort of antisocial, I mean, radically antisocial impulse, is you know, it, it is also aligned with the sort of antisocial impulses around. COVID, right, where suddenly all of social life becomes uh, imbued with this ambient threat, right, where, I mean, and I mean, I was just, I'm writing, I was just writing something related to this, but, you know, it was interesting seeing the kind of, you know, that the basic idea that, I mean, so if if you looked at the kind of left, you know, pro-lockdown writers and sort of discourses, you know, they, they were all premised on this idea that, and, and this is, you know, r- related to other examples we could come up with, right? But that, that the true form of solidarity is to exclude yourself from social life, right? Indefinitely. Right. Um, because that, you know, the way that you actually express care for others is to, you know, stay away from them. To yeah. stay away from them. Um, yeah. And this basic idea that, and, you know, and the point that I made sort of over and over again about this is that, <clears throat> you know, if you, and this relates to, you know, Agamben, who you bring up in the, the COVID piece, but, 
you know, if 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 you have a and th- this is another thing that someone like Benjamin Bratton explicitly says that, you know, the the new model of society, this ep- epidemiological model of society, right, which he saw as a positive thing, explicitly sees, you know, other human beings fundamentally as viral vectors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's just inconceivable to me how this can be seen as compatible with any notion of with any kind of robust or you know um non-abstract version of social solidarity well um, it's and it's an elevation of you know to use a goblin's terms bare life over any picture of the good life which will necessarily be have sociality i think at its core so it's it's a kind of nihilism i think um insofar as it elevates mere survival over every distinction um, that makes for a worthwhile life. So perhaps we should wrap up here. You know, my overall conclusion would be that the, the continuity of the sort of through line we can see is the way that um First of all, various kinds of emergencies, whether the, you know, whether the the notion of an incipient fascism in the United States um, or the the COVID emergency and and many others came in between, you know, are fundamentally the kind of animating principle behind this um, administrative and therapeutic state. Yeah. Um, that, you know, has evolved over the past 75 years or so. Um, so that would be one sort of crucial through line of this whole discussion. Um, could you, I don't know, perhaps add what, what are your further closing thoughts? Hmm. Well, I do. Th- I mean, it is clearly um, the state of emergency or the state of exception has become the norm you know, and that's just become the idiom of of social management and of 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 government. Um, so we've really departed quite far, I think, from the rule of law and constitutional principles. So we need to kind of update the the self image of the West. You know, we we keep calling it uh, liberal democracy, but I, I th- it really seems to be neither at this point. Um, you know, what comes next? It's, it's, I think we're all wondering that, right? And we're all wondering at the ontology of, of the meta tyrant that we keep having to come up with <laughs> new phrases to, to name. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting time. And I think kind of the challenge um, is to keep in view some thick and demanding picture of what a good life and a good polity looks like and um, how the idea of the common good can be um, sort of made operative in our politics. And um, I think for that, we need to revisit the whole anthropology that the current regime rests on of the sort of isolated liberal subject 
and maybe uh, entertain again some older pictures. Um, I find myself attracted to this idea that we're created in the image of God. Um, because I think that puts limits on the manipulation of the population for private gain. And it also grounds our aspiration to perfection in sort of imitation of, you know, some image of God rather than a kind of willful self-creation that is uh, kind of limitless and directionless and given to kind of resentment toward what's given. So I'm increasingly impressed with the idea that gratitude is the key to living well. So um, a politics of gratitude would be something worth trying to articulate. Well, with that, you can call it a day. Um, people can follow your Arcadelia project on Substack. I will link to that and look forward to uh, where that goes. Yeah, well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Jeff. I, I appreciate the <clears throat> invitation and the conversation. Yeah, anytime. Okay. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.